Hello, I'm Philip Stoughton from my house to yours. Welcome to EMS at Sea Level. Today's guest is Anna Shedletsky. Uh, Anna is the CEO and founder of Instrumental. Before we get into some questions, Anna, give me a quick introduction to yourself, your background and to Instrumental. Yeah, so my name is Anna Shedletsky. I am CEO and founder of a company called Instrumental. Um, I'm a mechanical engineer by training two degrees from Stanford, uh, started my first job at a school, was working at Apple as a product design engineer. I was there for six years, led a handful of iPod programs, um, and then led product design for the first generation Apple Watch. Um, great, innovative product. Everything was risky and new. Um, spent hundreds of days uh, in factories in China um, finding and fixing issues as part of the development of these new products and really realized that it's really inefficient uh, and we don't have great tools. Um, there's no like dev tools for hardware developers, if that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, I like I'm here in Silicon Valley surrounded by all these great software engineers um, and really felt this pain that it's too hard to find and fix issues in development and continuous improvement in production is too slow. That if we could go faster, we'd save a lot more money, we'd be a lot more efficient. And for the businesses that are thinking about it, we'd be a lot more sustainable in how we manufacture. Less physical waste, less, less monetary and economic waste and energy waste associated with parts we're just going to throw out. Just like don't make the bad parts in the first place. Yeah. Um, so that's really was the main impetus for starting Instrumental. We're six years old. We're based in um, our headquarters is in Silicon Valley. We have a, a China entity and office as well. Global team. Um, we've been growing pretty quickly uh, over the last um, multiple years, actually, but particularly um, during this uh, tumultuous time with the COVID pandemic, um, mm -hmm. and really excited to be here today to share yeah. a little bit about what we've seen with our customers um, and kind of the vision for the future. As kind of just a quick uh, aside around what Instrumental does. Um, so we collect data, product data from anywhere in the supply chain um, that is useful for engineering purposes. So not so much focused on the supply chain and traceability, although that is a piece of some of the stuff that we do, but focused on engineering data, product data, anything with a serial number we collect and we have AI that will identify anomalies and defects and relationships between failures um, in that data. So whether it's um, actual visual anomalies and failures or in the testation data that you might, you know, performance tests at the end of the line. Our customers are primarily on the brand side. Um, so we, we work with companies like Motorola, Lenovo, um, companies like that building um, mm. admired electronics products um, to help them bring their products to market faster, more efficiently and at lower cost. Yeah, and better. In, Hopefully, yeah. In, sim in simple terms. So my next question was going to be, is instrumental the service you wish you had? Clearly it is. Yes, 100%. Um, there is a lot of inefficiency in how engineers operate. And I was always very fascinated. Um, actually, one of the reasons I went to Apple or was drawn to Apple um, was because from the outside, you have this perception that they must build perfect things. I, I know that's very naive for someone who like, yeah. it, when you don't know anything about manufacturing and you're what like new in your idea. career, you could see why Apple kind of has this persona that like, oh, they must have like no failures. 
Um, and I was just really intrigued by that concept of building something perfect. Cause I knew that yeah. it was hard to build something perfect. I then found out that Apple doesn't know how to build perfect, you know, perfect things mm -hmm. every time. Yeah. Um, just like the rest of the industry, but I've always been very fascinated by the amount of like unperfect, un imperfection, I guess, imperfection yeah. that we're willing to accept as an industry yeah. and just kind of like frogs boiling in the water, like kind of just accepted. And yeah. this number has just like gone up and up and up over, I mean, I like I'm, I guess, 10 years in industry at this point, and it's increased even just during that period of time, you know, you've been in this industry way longer and it's definitely mm -hmm. increased over that yeah. period of time. Bain and companies projects that for some um, pieces of the manufacturing industry, this like economic waste could be as much as 40% of every dollar spent. That's yeah. a little bit crazy, um, yeah. but even if it was 20%, like let's say they're yeah. wrong by double, 20% is still more than any tariff that anyone's paying, any yeah. anything that's causing huge supply chain changes. And yet we, a lot of times we're kind of complacent about that inefficiency. And so yeah. let's go fix it. Yeah, and we're looking for 1% in the supply chain or we're looking for 1% to drive our EMS down. It's, um, yeah, let's, it's let's crazy. chunk it out at 5% at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love what you say about the, uh, the imperfection of products. And I watched one of your change notice shows and I was listening to you and one of your colleagues talking about using Sharpies to fix things. And uh, I think he talked about a story where he'd used chopsticks in production to... Uh, to fix a particular problem. So there's a yep. there's a whole lot of that. Talk to me a little bit about change notice and how that came about. Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things that we've learned as a, so we're six years old. One of the things that we've learned from a um, being in this space is that there's, there's very limited like learning content, like true learning content mm. for leaders and even you know mid-level or um earlier engineers that are not makers but engineers yeah. <laughs> lots of maker resources there's not yeah. a lot of engineering resources around how do you become a better product design engineer how do you become a better product development leader how do you become a better operations leader and when we talk to leaders um, VP levels, C levels about where they get information about best practices. They sh tell us that it's from like peers and one-on-one -on -one conversations. Like people aren't, some people go to conferences, but not everybody does. That's not like the main place. Um, and so there's no place online. There's no stack overflow for mm -hmm. these types of people. That's a, that's a software thing for, yeah. for listeners who don't know. That's where software engineers go to learn best practices. There's no equivalent. And so, um, you know, there's great shows like this one that you do, um, as well as uh, we're trying to build a community to just yeah. share that best practice. And part of the reason we think that there's less best practice sharing in electronics specifically is because there's a lot of sense of confidentiality and propriet proprietariness to a lot of what's mm. done. But like, let's be real, like using a, using HF8600 glue is like not like a, earth shattering proprietary thing, like figuring out how to dispense glue with glass beads in it, like repeatably at a 0.5 millimeter width. Like this is not, this is not mm -hmm. the stuff we need to keep secret. <laughs> um, we, there's other things that are 
that yeah. we should focus on as a, as an industry. Let's like share best practices for this kind of stuff that's really yeah. gnarly and like really impacts our efficiency to build. So, um, you know, the through the build better kind of larger uh, uh, event brand that we have, which is a community of folks that are want to learn best practices and share with each other in safe ways mm-hmm. that are not violating anybody's NDAs. Um, yeah. Change notice is kind of an out an outspill of that where people wanted to hear from other leaders, like about their yeah. stories, um, where they, you know, how they learned what they've learned and what their kind of ax to grind is as a, as a leader, whether that is in the case of what you were referencing, his ax to grind was really around, like, we really need the data during yeah. the production process. So even as an operations leader, I need to be data driven. That was his ax that he was grinding. We had mm. someone on a couple of weeks ago who's a product side leader um, for, for Eero, uh, which is a wireless um, router. Um, you know, and he, he was talking about needing to be able to operate very quickly during development as like the ax to grind, like you need to build hardware like software. Um, yeah. So essentially it's ways to get that kind of um, perspectives out broadly. Um, and you can yeah. find it at instrumental.com slash change dash notice. If you're interested, yep. we have all the videos up. Yeah. Or just check out the YouTube channel. It's all there, isn't it? Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's really good. I wondered if it was just, you got tired of being a guest on shows and you thought I can do this. I can host a show. That's not a, that's not yeah, well, We're trying different content formats too. Yeah. We're going to do engineers tear down products that they didn't build and talk about like yep. the engineering and the products. So there's, there's some interesting things we're trying out. Um, and yeah, I think part of it was we didn't see the type of content that we wanted yeah, to watch and you learn wanted. from. And I, filling that. Yeah, and one of the things I really like is you kind of have that formal part at the beginning and then you have a little bit of a off the record free for all at the end where the- That's uh, how we balance. You got to balance- The cameras between, are switched off and everybody yeah. can say, you know, Then maybe people are more willing to share. Um, yeah. That's what we're finding is that it's, it's pretty challenging uh, to create- environments that are safe for people yeah. to learn um yeah. and not feel like they are violating an nda or sharing something proprietary yeah yeah i often feel with those that as a um as a journalist i want to be in the room and learn from all that stuff but i don't want to be in the room if that stops people talking about all that stuff so it's kind of a it's kind of a strange position um Anna, we've gone from one disruption to another. We started with, um, you know, maybe trade wars straight into the pandemic, which just seems to rumble and rumble and seems to be that rolling thunder that won't stop. Uh, And we're now into a major component shortages. Do you think it's kind of, we've just got to accept that disruptions are our reality. We've got to design and build for disruption. And how's that impacted you and your customers? Yes, we need to design for disruption. <laughs> um, you know, maybe we, uh, we maybe the last like bef- prior to these kinds of disruptions, we were in like a relative peacetime in the manufacturing mm. space where things were pretty. Um, you could do just in time, and you could yeah. optimize every um, hour and cent out of a process um, to save money. But those you know, penny wise, pound foolish kinds of savings have really shown that resiliency and agility is really important. And we saw in our customers, um, you know, actually even before the pandemic, even just with the trade wars or trade trade 
escalations, let's say, yeah. um, that there's been a reevaluation of how to structure supply chains to be most protective to the, to the business that's trying to build those products. Everybody just wants to build their stuff. Like it's yeah. pretty simple yeah. and everybody wants to be able to predict that. And I think um, the unpredictability of the last like 24, 36 months even has been a challenge for the industry as a whole. But I think it's good because like the companies that survive will be stronger because they yeah. will have learned adaptations to how to be resilient and adaptive. And I think that we just as an as an industry at least in my time in this career, which is frankly has been less than many of your viewers, it's like only mm -hmm. 12 years. Um, you know, maybe we haven't had to do that before. So it feels new and it feels, it feels like something that may be passing and that we just have to like grit and bear it. But like when you're gritting and bearing it for the third year in a row, I think yeah. you gotta think about what changes you need to make. So uh, yeah. we're certainly seeing that with you know, our customers are large electronics brands. Um, we're seeing them reevaluate where they do their manufacturing. Um, some we see staying with trusted partners in China. Some we see moving with the same trusted partners into um, greater Asia locations, Vietnam, mm -hmm. Malaysia, other locations like that. Some we see particularly in the medium and smaller size companies, um, they're, they're looking to uh, do things themselves. We see yeah. companies building their own lines um, or getting local partners wherever they are. We're seeing yep. Mexico, we're seeing um, a lot of different places that people are, are looking to build to try to get that, um, to try to weigh all the different challenges of geopolitical instability combined with just getting the product done, supply chain cost, um, convenience, um, being able to get the product done when you can't travel to the location. Um, there's certainly continued uncertainty about when uh, China will be open for foreign visitors. It could be yeah. quite some time. Um, teams are also adapting by hiring in-region support um, and hiring folks locally and building technology. I think one of the huge, uh, huge things we've seen is the acceleration of putting product data in the cloud. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been selling a cloud-based product for six years. Um, yeah. and when we first started, uh, that was like a thing that there were multiple people who just closed the door and were like, we will yeah. never put no, this data not in the, the cloud. cloud. Yeah. Never. Uh, on-prem only, come back when you're on-prem uh, yeah. and you have a product that's on-prem. But you know, the future is not on-prem. The future is global. It's global teams working on yeah. problems and not having to be co-located to do it. And the beauty of, of cloud-based software is it's wildly scalable. It yeah. can be just, if not more secure. And uh, you can do supply chain wide style optimization that you can't you cannot do when you're looking at various yeah. on-prem systems, you're not able to do the, you have to do a lot of manual aggregation of the data to compare site A versus site B versus site C. And maybe the data looks a little different coming from each of those. That, that whole process is not like great, um, great efficiency for an organization, yeah. like use software and technology to do that. And so we've started yeah. to see, um, I mean, it was already happening before the pandemic where, you know, 
it pretty common that all the companies that closed their doors in our face like six years ago, that three years ago, they had like initial right. AWS instances. Yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, we've been exploring the cloud. Um, and now I think over the pandemic with the adoption of remote video conferencing tools and having yeah. to like, you know, FaceTime from the line with your partner that's there locally. Um, I think people are just trying to get whatever they need to move things along. I've always argued yeah. that it's not about cloud or not it's about at what cost and the cost yeah. over the last year became too high the cost was we don't get our product out on time we're slow our our competitors take market share we don't have anything to put on shelves for christmas that's the cost and that cost was yeah. too high to be you know figure out how to make cloud secure but like yeah. the, the world runs on the cloud now it's very secure yeah. um, absolutely and definitely secure. yeah and it and it makes sense. And it's interesting what you say about that shift from just in time to just in case. I think that's been huge. Yes. But what we what we all want is the right product made in the right location and made right. And that start that starts with great data. One of the things I just wanted to touch base on in terms of your technology is you're a cloud-based software company, but you rely on a certain amount of hardware to collect to collect data. Do you basically look at a line and say, hey, you know, you're, you've got a SPI there, you've got, you know, thermal imaging on the, on the ovens, you've got AOI, you've got data coming out of various machines and collect all that, or do you go in and put any hardware in the former? Uh, we do both. Um, so we have, we run the gamut from being able to provide value without touching the line, which is mm -hmm. very important. Um, for customers who are already in production. You don't want to touch the line until you're 100% yeah. sure that something is going to be give you the right ROI, have the right experience. Um, so we run the gamut from enabling not touching the line and just grabbing data through other means and methods to um, deploying our own, own equipment um, on the line to actually collect certain data types that our customers may not be able to get. So the way that I would describe it is that Anything that is attached with a serial number, so think about test data, measurements yeah. data, all of that, um, we, we have a way to ingest all of that data um, from the entire supply chain. So not just the final assembly factory, um, you, can, you can think about upstream, you can think about downstream at returns and repairs um, and all the data that's associated with yeah. serial numbers that may get stored in MES, some of it may not actually ever end up in MES though. It may be locally logged like the parametric data. So we help our customers unlock all that data and create this digital thread for a single, you know, for each serial number, 100% of their serial numbers. And then we enrich that data set with imaging. And so that imaging can come from cameras that our customers already have. If they have big mm -hmm. Cognex or Keyence installations, we just yeah. take in that data um, or uh, if they don't, we have drop-in hardware that our customers can put on the line and immediately get up and running um, to, with that enriched data set. And the reason the images are really helpful is that's ultimately like the inputs. If you think about your yeah. process, it's the geometries that you're putting in and the test data is the performance you get out. And so if you want to figure out how to get better performance, you need to understand what you put in. And that's why the imaging is, is so valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And I see several you know, some really important players that have a role in the SMT line and other parts yeah. of the line. Do you see yourself as 
a partner in that ecosystem? Do you kind of work with those different people to say, hey, you know, how can we use your data? How can we use some of the intelligence that you're deriving from the data alongside ours to get something more valuable for the customer? Absolutely. And we're having conversations right now um, about that. So if there are folks that are interested in adding um, intelligence like automatic uh, defect detection in you know, unsupervised defect detection in image data or relationships between automatically finding relationships between different data sets. We're like happy to have those conversations. We're currently um, over the over the past few years, we've um, we've been able to integrate to cameras that see in the UV spectrum, the IR spectrum. Um, we are now actually working on a potential partnership with an X-ray partner. Most of mm -hmm. this kind of highly specialized imaging equipment, the 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 brands that are, or the companies that are building that imaging equipment, they're scientists to create the best yeah. images. Um, and they're often not, um, it's not part of their business to necessarily uh, add these layers on top. And the so data we, layer. we yeah. work with them um, and they can find this as an opportunity to actually be able to sell more of their equipment yeah. because there's now some intelligence that can go with it and also traceability and transparency to, you know, to the end the end brand, um, even if the equipment is getting installed in a, in a manufacturing partner's facility um, that they yeah. can see and, and get value from that data. And so we've seen that it's made some customers more willing to spend the CapEx to buy something like an expensive inline x-ray machine um, when you can like immediately get like the, the, the close the loop on the issues yeah. that you're finding there and automatically yeah. find those issues. So yeah, we're certainly, um, we're certainly engaging in early stages uh, for a bunch of potential partnerships um, that we hope to announce later this year. Yeah, I think those partnerships and the ecosystem is really interesting. I also think the play with the EMS or the manufacturing company and the and the brand itself is really interesting because I look at the EMS, they should be able to drive up first pass yield, they should be able to increase their line efficiency, they should get all kinds of good things. Yeah. out of it but often it's the brand that you're installing for. Yes. Um, so I'm curious how that works and whether whether everybody feels it's a win win situation or sometimes the EMS feels that there's a there's a there's a spy in the factory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I would say that um, the most resilient supply chains, since we were talking about resiliency, are the ones where collaboration happens across the partnership of mm. the brand and the manufacturing partner, CM, JDM, whatever the model is, like with and the suppliers. Like the more collaboration you have, the faster you can solve problems. And collaboration yeah. requires data and transparency. Um, I think the the for decades it's true that like the way that um, kind of commercial agreements between brands and CMs have kind of dissuaded transparency in terms of like liabilities for costs yeah. and things like that. And that's really unfortunate because I think it's like added essentially there's like a break. On every on everything that like you have your program running forward, and you've got this break that's like a stick in the mud on yeah. um, on whose fault it is. Instead of like let's just fix it so we don't have yeah. to like so there isn't a bone pile in the first place. We're talking about yeah. five units right now. It's not a bone yeah. pile. It's five units. Yeah. Um, and so that's been our perspective. And what mm -hmm. we what we've been able to see with our customers is nearly a hundred percent of our brand customers 
their factories um, have logins and use the product as well. The benefit to the factory side is that, you know, A, they're not paying for it, but they get the benefits. Their brand is paying for it. Um, B, they can often use instrumental data to help their own arguments. Like a lot of times, mm-hmm. and I, I will admit to this as someone who is a was a product design engineer at Apple, like it's never my fault that something's not working first. Like there's a list. It's like first yeah. it's the operator. Yeah. It's probably their fault. Okay. It's not their fault. We, they assemble it right. Okay, fine. It's not them. Okay. Well then it must be the supplier part quality issue. Yeah. Oh, it's not that. Okay. Okay. Maybe it's my design. Like I'll go look at that. And then it's like in the design. Like, and the yeah. whole time yeah. we spent all this time finger pointing um, that if we just had better data, we could have just solved the problem together. We had a customer who shared Made an upstream supplier who um, was shipping, like essentially leaking def- what they viewed as out of spec or defective units into their final yeah. assembly factory. And um, there was a lot of finger pointing. And that's kind of how you would normally, you know, normally proceed as you kind of work through that, that yeah. log jam together. Instead, they were just able to pull the CEO of that supplier in, show them the images from the instrumental station and the data that had been collected. And the CEO of that supplier was like, yeah, we've got a problem. If we're shipping you that, that is a problem. And like yep. now like three weeks of negotiating of whose fault it is, is now compressed into a you know 30 minute conversation about, okay, what are we going to do next about this yeah. problem? Um, yeah. And so Let's that collaboration is really fast. And so we're actually, we view um, the CMs as like really important partners. Mm. Um, and so we're actually in conversations with several for, um, you know, potentially finding ways to, to partner together more yeah. um, in a commercial way um, that could benefit both sides to benefit their customers, yeah. benefit yeah. the um, CMs in the ways that, you know, CMs are pretty challenged from a margin perspective. It, it's really about ROI. Yeah. And so you yeah. need business model structures that work for how CMs yeah. get paid um, and how their businesses operate. And so that's yeah. something we're, we're looking very closely at because of the interest level um, from, from their customers and also from the CMs themselves and from wanting them the themselves. data. Yeah, I see them as, you know, potentially as evangelists, because if you've got a brand that asks you to install in all of their, their EMS facilities, obviously that, that system's already in place and there's a whole bunch of other OEMs running their product down that line. So that's, uh, you know, that's a huge opportunity. I was talking to a EMS manufacturer on a, on a webinar this morning, and he was talking about exactly what you said about this idea of transparency. Um, And he referred to as get, he referred to it as getting naked in front of his customers. And he said, which was an interesting term, but he said, once he, once they did that, their business started to grow really rapidly. And they started to build a level of trust with their, with their customers that they, they didn't have before because everything happened kind of in this black box. So take that mystery away. And I think then people become more naturally more collaborative. Absolutely. I am a big proponent of that. I've seen, I've seen it both ways, um, mm. you know, suppliers as a, as a product design, like leader myself, yeah. saw suppliers who had, you know, second drawing with different specs on mm. it, like that, like, or cheating on the line. And then also saw the suppliers that wanted to build relationships and be transparent. And frankly, like, uh, me and like, as a leader thinking about who I want to work with, I want to do business with people who are going to tell it to me straight. 
um, yeah. and not try to hide things. Cause like if the problems are in the open, we can work on them together. We'll solve them much faster. Um, and so I think like overall, we need to really think about how we do those negotiate. It all comes from the negotiations on the commercial agreements of who's yeah. in for what. And I think focusing on collaboration and how to incentivize collaboration in those agreements is and resiliency of the supply chain is yeah. probably more important than like, did you get the lowest cost? Because if you think about yeah. it this way, pandemic happens, um, you have, if you have a relationship with your, your manufacturing partner that is, uh, is trusted and deep, like you're going to mm-hmm. get up and running faster than if there's like, oh, we can't share what the real date is. We can't. Yeah. And then like everybody's wasting resources on each side, having a fake schedule and a real schedule. And yeah, who has time for all yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. And it's interesting, Anna, because you come at it from the product side. I come at it from the point of view of the manufacturing side. And if we can fix that relationship where, you as a brand allowed me as a manufacturer to make a decent margin yeah. and to have an yeah, open we, relationship where if we do a great less. job, we do better out of it as well. Yeah. Rather cool. than we, if we do better out of it, we have to give all that benefit back to the brand. Then, you know, yeah. then I think there's something to build on. And I, I think, think there's like, I think that's, that's changing as well in a shared way so that hmm. both sides benefit for efficiency gains. Um, yeah. versus only like winner take all on the customer side. Yeah. I, I remember um, uh, visiting a supplier um, to a large brand who was talking about automation, which is another area in which this often mm. is a challenge, like not just technology, you know, technology in general, not just software and data, but like yeah. also automation. Um, you know, when they make a quote and they're like, okay, that's going to take 15 operators to make this thing, the customer is willing to pay for 15 operators. But if they bring the customer through the room and they see there's this big machine with one guy putting in parts at the front and like a, a woman taking parts out the back, uh, they only want to pay for those two people, but not all yeah. of the R&D that went into the machine. Well, then you're not going to get any machines. Then. Like if that's, if that's how you negotiate. Yeah. Um, and so I think those should be shared wins. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's the direction that industry needs to move in. And I hope I hope actually all the disruption of the last you know two three years now um, will inspire people to realize like this is about relationships and the partners that you had strongest relationships mm-hmm. with are the ones who are coming through for you. Um, yep. Whatever's happening to get through together because you're both your fates are tied together. It's not like the brand wins the CM yeah. loses. Like everyone. Can yep. win. Um, yep. Hashtag shared wins. That's what we're going to put on this on this on this interview. I'm conscious that we could talk all day, so I don't want to take up too much of time. One thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap up, though, is both you and I have been writing regularly in Forbes and Entrepreneur and various different publications. And throughout the pandemic, we were talking about the um, the crisis or the disruption as an accelerator. Um, we're both digital evangelists. So, you know, we both see this thing as something that's happening, but so we're in our echo um, chamber together. <laughs> there you go. So I am curious to, as to whether you thought we were right or wrong. Um, I think for some, so I, so to be explicit on what I said, I was quoted in the economist as saying that, and I think this is maybe March, um, of 2020, 
that in the next 18 months, we will have five years of acceleration um, mm -hmm. in technology adoption and manufacturing space, explicitly at least electronics manufacturing, because that's where yeah. I live. Um, and so, okay, so it's been 15 months. <laughs> We've got three more months left. Where yeah. are we? And um, here's my take. Some companies, they did it. They yeah. did. They they jumped in. They realized they need to get their data. <clears throat> what are they doing relying on Excel spreadsheets and CSV yeah. and manually aggregated reports that CMs spend a lot of time making and a lot of headcount effort making all this reporting? What are they doing? Like plug in, get the data, get the raw data, yeah. share it with in both sides, the CM yeah. and the and the brand working together. Um, I think it made it clear how much I think brands developed a deeper appreciation for their, you know, CMs and JDMs because it was the CMs doing it all last year. They shipped yeah. those products in through developments where maybe the engineers never saw the product, never saw the line. Um, yeah. They saw the products after they were made. And so um, we saw like a huge emphasis on collaboration and collaboration tools. We saw some teams doing some crazy stuff that was not particularly accelerating this future. Like mm -hmm. working night shift from California is not solving the problem. That's just nope. mandating the problem. Yeah. So we definitely saw some of that, but we saw companies like getting their, getting hold of their data and recognizing that if they have their data, they can work and collaborate globally, remotely together um, and solve these problems, whatever the, pro the normal manufacturing problems, yeah. as well as like the other challenges around, you know, the component shortages uh, that have required people to re redesign what they're building, mm -hmm. change their plan, um, figure out how to get stuff from the spot market, collaborate together, figure out how to fund um, these products when your cash to cash has gone from like yeah. a 24 months to 36 months. Like, how do you even fund a product like that if you're not Apple or swimming in cash? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what that's what we saw. So not every, I would say like, it's not been uniform. There are some who yeah. have definitely gotten there. And then there's some who are kind of just like waiting for the gates to open to go back to normal. Um, yeah. And I think what we'll see is when the gates open, when that does happen, which it'll happen at some point, um, we will see uh the ones who have taken the time now to build and think differently about their strategy for remote development for global global collaboration um in manufacturing which is a very tangible kind yeah. of thing hard to think about how you do that digitally those ones will go faster and be yeah. way better positioned um in the future yeah yeah no i i i agree with most of that i've spoken to a lot of ceos of ems companies they feel yeah, very strongly they they've got to they've got to get moving on this and they feel very strongly that they want to do it they are looking to suppliers like yourself to provide them with solutions that that don't punch a big hole in their capex budget yes and that's one of the things that i've heard that and, they've had this this that they can do yeah, this well. contrast of we need to accelerate digital transformation, but hey, my board are telling me I need to keep my powder dry in terms of cash because yep. of because we don't know what the next crisis is going to be or how long this is going to last. And they've been looking to companies that they traditionally have on their CapEx AVL to move to OPEX. So the idea that 
they can buy stuff as a service is really exciting to them. Um, And I think that's an acceleration. um, Because five years ago, the idea that you would touch the OPEX box on the the P&L for product was like crazy. You were crazy to be trying to sell anything even remotely similar to subscription or SaaS uh, five years ago. Um, And the benefits of that today is you get ROI on day one. Yeah. Like who doesn't want ROI on day one? Who wants to like carry the cost? Um, So I think that has been really interesting to see that transition. I totally agree with you that there has been more openness to thinking about these software, software as a service, um, automation as a service. Automation as a service, robotics as a service. I think all of those things are, yeah, are, are really interesting and they're all leading to a, you know, a more sustainable industry, an, an industry that can grow. And I think there's also a shift that's either starting to happen, starting to happen. We see some pieces of it away from thinking about technology purely on an ROI basis and more as an infrastructure requirement. Yeah, um, And I think that's been very interesting to see. That is the right way to think about it. Like, what is the ROI of like your CAD program? Like, what yeah. is the ROI of your MES? Like, could you even calculate it? That yeah. makes it really hard if you're thinking about other technologies. Like, you have this standard you didn't apply for the MES, but now you want to apply to everything else that kind of is, you know, relating around it. Doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. You got to think about it like infrastructure, Um we need the data. What is the most efficient way to get it? And then how do we get the most from it? Um, yeah. I think is, is, is a transition we're starting to see. We're not quite there yet. I was hoping we'd be there by the end of the 18 month period, but I guess we've got yeah. three months left. Well, you got three months. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll know that. I'm not convinced, but, but I think the, the momentum is definitely there. And I think carrying that momentum through is going to be absolutely the key as we, as we go forward. Anna, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to chat. As I say, we could talk all day. I'm sure we'll come back to some of these topics further down the line. But in the meantime, thanks so much for taking time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.